You're listening to Spirit and Truth, a no-nonsense biblical look at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This teaching series was delivered live at the Redeemer Bible Fellowship in Medford, Oregon. For more Bible-saturated content, visit our website at RedeemerMedford.org. That's RedeemerMedford.org. Brothers and sisters, we're continuing the sermon series that we've been in for quite some time now on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. This is part 10 of that series, and we're finishing off a kind of mini-study within that, looking at the Spirit's role in salvation, looking at the Spirit's role in salvation. And this morning in particular, we want to look at the idea of adoption, the idea of adoption, and I want to tie that in with the idea of assurance, the idea of adoption and the idea of assurance. I've titled the message this morning, Sure About Sonship. Sure About Sonship, the Spirit's role in adoption and assurance. Before I go on, um, as you guys know, every now and again, I like to kind of take some time and take questions that have arisen from this series. We've done one of those already where we've kind of paused. People kind of submitted their questions and we're able to think some about what we're attempting to do in this series. Um, I felt like it'd been a while since we'd done that, so we're going to have another one. So if you want to put the date down, February the 28th. Um, easy way to remember, it's two Sundays from now. Um, at 7 p.m. via our YouTube channel. We do it digitally just because we don't have an evening service, and so it's easier for us to do it digitally than to try to do it in person. But February 28th at 7 p.m., we'll go for about an hour. I think last time we were just over an hour. And we'll take as many questions. I know I've said a lot in this series. And I imagine that with me saying so much, that raises some questions about various facets of the Spirit's work. Um, by the time that we get to that point, we'd have two messages on sanctification and the Spirit. So I imagine there's going to be a lot of questions there. So February the 28th, 7 p.m. on our YouTube channel, we'll have a live Q&A that you can submit questions to. And I will do my best to give you a Bible answer. If I can't find it in the Bible, I'll tell you I don't know. And apologize profusely. Uh, either way... Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8, as we think about this theme of adoption and assurance. Romans chapter 8, and my focus actually is going to be verses 15 through 17. And that won't be till towards the end, well, the middle of the message, I should say. But just so we can have that thought in context, we're going to read the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8. We read verses 18 through 13, a previous message. And this morning we come to verses 1 to 17. Romans chapter 8, from verse 1 through to verse 17. This is, I'm hope, I hope, becoming our custom around here. I will invite you to read with me. I will read the odd-numbered verses. I invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. Romans chapter 8, from verses 1 through 17. If you're able to do so, would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word as we read it? Romans chapter 8, reading from verse 1 through to verse 17. Brothers and sisters, these are God's words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law could not do, since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. For those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on the things of the Spirit. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 
And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his Spirit who lives in you. Because if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, it will abide forever. Let's pray together, ask for the Spirit's help, and we will get to work this morning. Heavenly Father, we would ask that as we open up the pages of your word and, as it were, put our ear up to what you are saying to us from the Scriptures, we pray that you would open our ears that we would hear, open our eyes that we would see. Father, through the work of your Spirit, May you grant us understanding of these glorious things of which we want to talk about. Father, be our help in this time. We ask it in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. In my short ministry life, if there's one thing that I've encountered that makes me very, very sad, it's encountering Christians who struggle with the assurance of their salvation. The the, the reasons may be different, the stories you hear may change, but one thing that for me has never changed is just the sadness you feel when you see someone who is genuinely agonizing over whether they're saved or not. Honestly, there was a part of me for quite some time that used to think that my job was to try and convince people that they were saved. You know, you, my sort of standard approach would be, well, okay, I understand that you feel this way, but let's be objective about this. Let's go to the book of First John. First John is written explicitly so that, which is not a bad approach. Let's, let's, let's be fair about that. You know, as I go to First John and look at what First John says are the signs of spiritual life. What are the signs of somebody who is believed? John's full of those signs. We saw some of them in a message a few weeks ago. And while that wasn't the worst thing to do, I found that all it did was turn people inward. Because then, when you start telling someone, okay, here's how you know you're saved. Well, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? What's the inevitable result? They start looking at themselves. (laughs) Well, am I doing... The question that always come back to me that I started to get frustrated with almost was, well, how do I know if I'm doing enough? And I used to get frustrated, and then I stopped being frustrated by it because I, my wife, who's at home with our child at the moment, would probably laugh because I say this phrase a lot. I realized I was becoming the architect of my own frustration. In other words, I was frustrating myself because I was asking the wrong question. If I'm asking the wrong question, of course people are going to give me the wrong answers. So wanting to understand, okay, what do I do with, because I keep encountering this and I've noticed that that's not a question that I've encountered much in my time here in the States. In the UK, I was encountering it all the time. And I've asked and I've gotten various reasons why there may be cultural differences surrounding all of that. But it used to bug me. I was like, what do I do? Because I want to help this per- these people who are coming to me and th- th- they're talking to me about the lack of assurance they feel and they're agonizing over it. They're not being glib about this. They- they're genuinely concerned. So... I'm at a conference. It was a youth conference, to be precise. It was the Banner of Truth Youth Conference um, back in the UK. And it just so happened that one of the speakers, a pastor called Stuart Olliott, a man I have a lot of respect for, um, came and sat down with a group of us who were having lunch. And so, you know, everyone got to ask him questions. I was like, you know, let me try and get him one-on-one and ask the question I want to ask. 
And so I asked him, pastor of almost 40 years, author of a number of books, very well respected in the UK. And I asked him, um, I used to call him Uncle Stu. Uncle Stu, um, how do I deal with Christians who struggle with their assurance? And he's like, I think in a moment of wisdom, he said, well, tell me what you're doing right now. It's like, well, I'll take him to one John, and I kind of walk through, you know, all the marks of, you know, somebody who's, he's like, you know, you kind of, when you talk to some older, wiser people, they don't say too much. You can just kind of read their face, and they tell you, yeah, rookie move. <laughs> this was one of those times. Because he's just looking at me like, hmm. And then he gave me a sentence that has just been burned into my memory. He asked me a question. He said, are you convinced that these people are believers, Kofi? I'm like, yeah, when they tell me their testimony, I'm like, I have no reason to doubt their belief. No, I genuinely think they are. He said, and in fact, I wrote it down in my notes so I wouldn't forget it. He said, son, you're not trying to convince people they're saved when you're dealing with people's assurance. You're trying to comfort saints with their sonship. I'll say it again. He said, son, you're not trying to convince people they're saved when they're struggling with their assurance. You're trying to comfort saints with sonship. He went on to unpack that and said, listen, you, what you're trying to do, you're using the wrong tools for. What they need to do is to be reminded that they are sons. That whether they feel like they are sons or not, as important as that is, that's not what makes them a son. You are a son whether you feel like it or not. Have you, this is Kofi, ask them, have you repented of your sins? Are you trusting in Christ daily? If you are, the Bible says you're a son. He said, Kofi, I would advise you, go study the doctrine of adoption. It'll change the way you deal with that question. And he just left it at that. <laughs> so I did. Began to give myself to a very earnest study of this doctrine of adoption, this doctrine of the fact that when a believer becomes a believer, they have God for their father and God has them for a son or a daughter. And what I began to realize that was that this doctrine is one of the most comforting, it's one of the most precious, it's one of the most life-giving, it's one of the most empowering truths that a Christian can get their mind around. It's no wonder that in 1 John 3, 1, John says, Behold what manner of love that we should be called the children of God. What I began to realize was that in both cases, people didn't have an assurance problem. What they had was an adoption problem. That the struggle was not so much, how can I know that I'm saved? It's how can I know that God is indeed my father? And I began to realize as I studied the scriptures and I began to actually practice this with people, that the results were different. The People were leaving these conversations with me, not burdened, but in God's providence, somewhat encouraged. They were coming away from these conversations feeling like the burden had been taken off them. Why? Because God's word was reminding them that they are not slaves, but their sons. And so this morning, I want us to consider these twin truths, and I do believe them to be twin truths of adoption and assurance. Here's my contention this morning. Here's my contention this morning. Understanding our adoption as believers helps us in our assurance as believers. If we understand what God has done in making us members of his family, that will help us in our assurance of salvation. So here's my game plan for this morning. Uh, I don't plan on this being a long sermon, but we'll see how it goes. Uh, my game plan for this morning is real simple. I want us, one, to consider the principle of adoption. Okay, what exactly does the Bible mean when it uses this language of adoption? And then I want us to consider the power behind our adoption. So the principle and the power, I don't plan on being before you long. Consider with me, first of all, the principle of adoption. 
the principle of adoption, simply put, that God makes us a part of his family. The principle of adoption is very simple, that God makes us, when we become believers, members of his family. I want to kind of look at this from two vantage points very quickly. First of all, I want to look at the word adoption itself. And then secondly, I want to look at the concept behind that word. So the word itself and then the concept behind it. So consider with me point A there in your study guide. The word itself. The word adoption itself. The word that's translated adoption in your Bibles is actually a very simple word. It's the word for a son. And it's the word to place or to position. Simply put, the term means to place someone into the position of sonship. To place as a son. This wasn't a word that Paul made up. It's a word that was pretty standard in the New Testament, the world of the New Testament. People use this word pretty regularly. What's interesting is when you actually read the New Testament, the word itself is not that common. It appears in one, two, three, four, five places. So Romans chapter 8 and verse 15, you noticed it in our reading. Paul says, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. He says, instead, you received the spirit of adoption. Verse 23, Paul says, not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. So there's a future aspect to this that Paul picks up there. Romans 9, 4, Paul says about the Israelites that to them belong the adoption. Same word. Galatians 4, 4 through 7, those of you who were here the Sunday before Christmas, this was the text we looked at. Galatians 4, 5, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Ephesians 1, 5 says that we were predestined to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. So you've got five uses. One of them refers to the nation of Israel, but four of them relate to the adoption of believers. That through an act of God, we have been placed as sons in the very family of God. So that's the word itself, but... I want to take a step back and not just look at the word itself, but to look at the concept itself. So point B there in your study guide, what the concept means. Not only do you want to look at what the word itself means, but what does this concept mean? Now, like I said, when Paul refers to this idea of our adoption, the, the idea of adoption is not something he made up. This was a fairly standard practice in his day. One dictionary puts it like this, quote, in Greek and Roman society, adoption was, at least among the upper classes, a relatively common practice. Unlike the Oriental cultures in which slaves were sometimes adopted, these people normally limited adoption to free citizens. But, at least in Roman law, the citizen so adopted became a virtual slave and came under the paternal authority of the adoptive father. Adoption conferred rights, but it came with a list of duties as well." End quote. And that's the language that Paul is pulling from when he talks about this idea of our adoption. That you are a son with the right to inheritance and the responsibility of service. Let me say that again. The concept of, the concept of adoption is pretty simple. You're a son with the right to inheritance and the responsibility of service. John puts it like this in the opening section of his gospel account. You've probably read those words, John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Adoption comes with rights. The right to inherit. By the way, did you pick up when I very quickly looked at those passages in Romans 8 and Galatians 4? Romans 8, 15, Galatians 4. Did you see that there was a contrast between slavery and sonship? So Galatians 4, 7 says, So then 
you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then God has made you an heir. Romans 8.15, see the contrast? You didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption. Another part to this concept that's going to be very important when we get to Romans 8, 15 to 17 in a moment is that the Bible's understanding is that you are either a slave or you are a son. And the distinction between the two is this, the slave will not inherit, but the son will. A slave cannot inherit, but a son can and will inherit. You kind of put all that together and we can really boil it down like this. Adoption essentially speaks to our status, that we're sons, and it speaks to privilege that we will inherit. So it speaks to our status, that we're sons of God, and it speaks to privilege that we are going to inherit. Our fathers in the faith put it like this. I'll put it up on the screen. The 1689 London Baptist Confession says this, quote, God has granted all those who are justified, God has granted that all those who are justified would receive the grace of adoption in and of, in and for, excuse me, the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ. By this, they are counted among the children of God and enjoy the freedom and privileges of that relationship. They inherit his name, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, and are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are given compassion, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as a father. Yet they are never cast off, but are sealed for the day of redemption, and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. You see, when you, when you became a believer, you didn't just get your sins forgiven. And I have to be careful even wording it like that because that's not a small thing in itself. But it's not as though God, as it were, punched your eternity ticket and then said, all right, you're all set, be on your way now. Like, it's like I got a speeding ticket a few months ago, fully earned that ticket, so I didn't complain about it. But, you know, there was no relationship involved when I had to go down to the courthouse and pay the ticket. I walked in, I had my little slip saying, okay, I owed them this much. Lady took it, I paid, stamped it, gave me a receipt, I went on my way. <laughs> in a sense, the relation, my relationship with the law has been dealt with at that point, right? I owed the law money, I paid it, we're good. I went my way and I've never had to go back to the courthouse again, thankfully. <laughs> But that's not what God does in our salvation. It's not as though he just, as it were, we turn up with our ticket. He pays it and says, all right, we're all done. Have a nice life. No, God doesn't just deal with our legal status. As Christians, we love the doctrine of justification, that we've been declared righteous, not because of anything in us, but because of Christ's righteousness that's imputed to us. We love that doctrine, and we should. But I think sometimes we stop there and we don't press into the fact that one of the great benefits that flows from that is that we are adopted into the family of God. That God invites us into a love relationship where, if those of you who were here remember when we looked at the Spirit and the New Covenant a while ago now, remember one of the promises that God makes in covenant? That I will be your father and you will be my children? Well, that's what happens in adoption. God doesn't just, as it were, deal with the problem of our sin and leave us there. No, he invites us in to a love relationship with him where we become his children and he becomes our father. What a principle. What a truth for us to kind of get our arms around and to embrace with the whole of our being. I mean, it's great to understand the truth, but, okay, how does this speak to our experience as Christians? What does this have to do with this question of assurance that you've brought up? Well, what exactly does the Spirit do? Why are we talking about adoption in relation to the person and work of the Spirit? Well, turn with me to Romans 8, 15 through 17. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Romans chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. We've looked at the principle of adoption, that God makes us members of his family. But secondly, I want to consider the power behind adoption. The power behind adoption. 
as we think about the Spirit's work in adoption and assurance. As I said, verses 15 through 17 is going to be my focus for the rest of our time, but allow me to paint the context of Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8 is kind of the tail end of a discussion about sanctification that began all the way back in chapter number 6. By the time you get to Romans chapter 8, Paul has dealt with the fact that, okay, we are dead to sin and alive to righteousness because of our union with Christ. The fact that when you became a believer, God, as it were, identified you with Christ and so joined you to him that everything that Christ enjoys, we enjoy by faith. That leads into chapter 7. Okay, what do we do with this issue of the law then? Because the law hangs over us as a problem. Chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, I take the view that Paul there is talking about the experience of the believer, the struggle that the believer has between the new nature that's been imparted to them and the remnants of indwelling sin that kind of fight within us and wrestle within us. So Paul can say, listen, I know the good I want to do, but I can't do it. But the evil I don't want to do, that I find myself doing. And he ends in chapter 7 and verse 25 and says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? But then he says, thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ we have the victory. And he starts to unpack that victory in Romans chapter 8. In 39 verses, Paul unfolds for us the freedom that we've come to have in Christ through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If you want an easy way to think of Romans chapter chapter 8, think of it as the 3D section about our sanctification. I call it 3D because I think you can divide it into three sections, all beginning with a D. So in verses 1 through 11, you have freedom from the damnation of sin. So sin levies a judgment against us, and the end result of that is damnation. And Paul says, chapter 8, verse 1 that we read, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free from the damnation that sin brings, verses 1 through 11. And then in the second D, verses 12 through 27, we're freed from the dominion of sin. The ongoing power that sin has in the unregenerate life, Paul says that's not true of you. You are freed from the dominion of sin. And then finally, the defeat that sin brings, the weightiness that sin brings, that feeling of, oh, I messed up, and oh, man, what's going to happen to me? The defeat of sin, Paul says, no, we're freed from that too. Verses 28 to 39. So the damnation of sin, 1 through 11, dominion of sin, 12 through 27, the defeat of sin, or the defeat that sin brings in verses 28 to 39. That second movement, that second section, the dominion of sin starts in verse 12 where we read. And Paul says that since we've been freed from the damnation of our sin, verse 12, so then, Romans 8, 12, brothers and sisters, we are not obligated to live according to the flesh because if you are going to live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Remember what we talked about last week when we talked about the new birth? The fact that the believer is no longer, as we saw in 1 John, under the dominion of sin. Sin is no longer the unbroken pattern of their life. Why? Because the work of the Spirit leads to a new relationship to sin. We no longer live according to the flesh, according to the remnants of the sinful nature that we once possessed. If we had time, I'd love to go into the question of does a Christian have one nature or two natures? That's a whole other Pandora's box that we could open. I'll save that for another time. Suffice it to say, Paul says, you no longer live according to the flesh, but you now live according to the Spirit. And one of the marks of that is, verse 13, you're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Verse 14, I'm going to leave for a future message because we're going to talk about the leading of the Spirit. But I'll simply note that Paul starts to introduce this idea of sonship. And he says that those who are God's sons are led by the Spirit. By the way, we need to be very careful with that verse because there's a way to read that which makes being a son conditional on being led. Do you catch what I mean when I say that? There's a way to read that that makes it sound as though, listen, 
if you're not being led by the Spirit, you're not a son. I don't think that's Paul's point. I think you need to flip that a little bit. What Paul is saying is this. One of the privileges of sonship is that you're led by the Spirit. Like I said, we'll have a whole message devoted to the leading of the Spirit and what exactly that means. So I'm not going to spend too much time here. We want to get to verse 15. Because it's in verse 15 through 17 where Paul's going to unpack the power that lies behind our adoption. And of course, it's the power of the Holy Spirit that makes our adoption living and real. Paul's going to give us two thoughts to kind of hang our hats on. First of all, the Spirit secures our adoption. The Spirit secures our adoption, verse 15. So do you see that contrast that I pointed out earlier there? Verse 15, for you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You see, before we knew the Lord, we were enslaved by the world. We were enslaved by our flesh. We were enslaved by the devil. It's ironic that the world talks about sinful actions and sinful behaviors like it's freedom. But the Bible's understanding is, John chapter 8, 34 and 35, Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. There's no freedom in sin. There's only bondage there. You see, sin leads to bondage and slavery. But look at Romans 8 here. Paul says, verse 15, No, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption. Where sin leads to bondage and slavery, the spirit leads to belonging and sonship. Let me say that again. Uh, Where sin leads to bondage and slavery, the spirit leads to belonging and to sonship. When you became a believer, you, you didn't come to a vengeful master who, as it were, was kind of rubbing his hands with a sick kind of glee saying, see, I kept you alive. I could have destroyed you, but I kept you alive. Now you've got to make it up to me. You've got to work now. No, 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 no. You came, the Bible says, to a gracious and a loving Father who gives the gift of, your, of His Spirit so that we are able to say... Do you see that there at the end of verse 15? We're able to say, Abba, Father. We are able to lay hold of God and say, This is indeed my Father. The Spirit empowers us to truly know God, not just as a sovereign, not just as a judge, not just as a king even, but as Father. Can, can, can I pause here for a moment? Can I, can I pause here for a moment? As somebody who has a heart for disciple-making and seeing believers equipped, encouraged, and strengthened in their faith, I'm deeply concerned that at times... We've not always done well as Christians with this doctrine of adoption. That we don't, particularly in our sort of theological tradition, I think sometimes we really struggle with the concept of God as a father. It seems almost as though that in an effort not to seem squishy and not to seem soft and not to seem like, as one author put it, an evangelifish, like, because we don't want any of that, we kind of downplay talking about God as a father in an intimate kind of way. It's almost as though, and this is just my take, you may disagree with me and that's fine. It's just my take, but it seems to me almost as though, sure, we love God, but sometimes we just don't think he loves us like that. You know, yeah, God loves us, I mean... Christ died for us, that dealt with the past. But does God, can I put it like this? Maybe this is not the most helpful way, but I'm trying my best here. It's not that we struggle with the idea that God loves us. I think sometimes as Christians, we subconsciously struggle with the fact that does God actually like us? <laughs> Maybe one of the symptoms, you know, throughout the series, I've kind of pointed at 
the fact that I think that there's a struggle that we have in the contemporary church when it comes to relating to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And I can't help but think if maybe one of the symptoms of our weakness in this area is the reality that we struggle to relate to God first and foremost as a loving father. And so it sucks the joy out of the Christian life. It sucks the happiness out of the Christian life. It sucks the ability to serve and to give ourselves away for Christ fully. It kind of sucks that out of us. Why? Because deep down inside, I wonder if some of us genuinely struggle with the fact that God doesn't just love us. He actually likes us because of Christ. Ironically, we can end up being sons who act like slaves because we can't believe that we're sons. So much more I'd like to say about the Spirit's role in our adoption, but I do want to keep it moving. Not only does the Spirit speak to our, excuse me, secure our adoption, not only does He secure our adoption, secondly, He speaks to our assurance. He speaks to our assurance, verses 16 and 17. The Spirit is the one who bears witness to the fact that we can have assurance, not just of salvation in general, but of sonship in particular. And he does this in two particular ways. First of all, he does this in the here and now. In the here and now. So verse 16, Paul says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Verse 16. Now, I need a technical moment here. I promise I'll try to keep this as short as possible, but it's kind of important. Most of your English translations in the room, mine included, I use the Christian Standard Bible. Some of you will have the ESV. Some may have the NAS. They all generally translate this verse as though the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, testifies with or witnesses with or bears witness to with, excuse me, this week, as I was kind of poring over this passage and looking at it in the original language, it kind of hit me that probably that's not the most helpful way to translate that. And then I discovered that I wasn't alone, that quite a few commentators think that's not the most helpful way. Let me explain what I'm getting at. If I can give you a brief, brief grammar lesson about how Greek works. There are four types of verb in, verbs in Greek. One of them is what's called a dative verb. Easy way that I, when I was learning Greek, easy way that I kind of committed to memory was think it's about relate, it's a verb that has to do with relationship, general kind of relationship. So the way I kind of remembered it was I'm going on a date with a dative verb. That was the easiest way I could remember it. It speaks to relationship. The question here is, and this is where translators struggle, what kind of relationship is Paul talking about? Because the relationship is between the Holy Spirit and our spirit. And the question is, well, what exactly is the relationship here? Is it that the Spirit testifies with our spirit or that the Spirit testifies to our spirit? And you may think, Kofi, that sounds like a distinction without a different way. You like low on sermon material and just needed something to pad the sermon with. No, 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 no. I think it's actually pretty important. If you say that the Spirit testifies with our spirit, that's saying that we are testifying and the Spirit joins us in testifying. It starts with you and it's pointing outwards. I don't think that fits with the context of this passage. Remember verse 15? He says that we received the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. It's pointing outwards. That would lead me to suggest, and it does a number of other commentators, and there are a bunch of other reasons as well, that what we're dealing with here is not the Spirit coming alongside us and helping us to testify, but that there is a work that the Spirit of God does imperceptibly. In other words, we don't necessarily feel it, but we know it. Where the Spirit testifies and speaks to us in relation to our adoption and our subjective assurance of that adoption. In other words, that when we are lacking in assurance, that when our assurance is in question or we're struggling, 
The Spirit of God works in such a way as He powerfully testifies to us in the inner man that we are indeed God's child. Now, one of the, when I started digging into this a little bit, one of the objections I heard was, this is mysticism. The, you're basically telling people to look within. Well, no, I think I mentioned in the beginning of the sermon that I don't think that's a helpful way anymore to look at this. And I was quite surprised because one of the commentators who seemed to agree with this was somebody who really hated mysticism, probably more than I do, no less a luminary than John Calvin. Here's what he says in his commentary on Romans. Quote, Paul means that the Spirit of God gives us such a testimony that when he is our guide and teacher, our spirit is made assured of the adoption of God. For our mind of its own self, without the preceding testimony of the Spirit, could not convey to us this assurance. Can I pause and say that's what I was getting wrong when I mentioned my introduction? I was trying to appeal to people on a logical basis saying, well, look at this, look at you, look at this, look at you. Oh, do you match? You're okay. The problem is without the Spirit of God, none of that really matters. He goes on, quote, There is also here an explanation of the former verse. For when the Spirit testifies to us, again, interesting, he translates it, testifies to us that we are the children of God. He at the same time pours into our hearts such confidence that we venture to call God our Father. And doubtless, since the confidence of the heart alone opens our mouth, except the Spirit testifies to our hearts respecting the fatherly love of God, our tongues would be dumb so that they could utter no prayers. In other words, if the Spirit did not testify powerfully to us, we could not turn around and call God Father. While I do hate mysticism in all its forms, and I'm going to have a message right at the end of this series where I kind of tackle that subject head on, because I do think it's one of the most dangerous things that gets in the way of our understanding of the Spirit's work. While I have no time for it in any form, I do believe that one of the Spirit's ministries in this present age is ongoing subjective assurance to the child of God in the inner man that they are indeed God's child. As you know, I have a high regard for our fathers in the faith. In the study guide this week, I've, on pages two and three, I've included a rather lengthy quote from the 1689 on the subject of assurance of salvation. I think it's one of the best things in print on the subject. And when the writers of 1689, who were very good biblical exegetes and good theologians, put that thing together, you'll notice, I believe it's in the second paragraph thereabouts, that they talk about, quote, the spirit the testimony, excuse me, of the spirit of adoption who, with our, who witnesses with our spirits that we are the children of God. They fully understood something that I think we sometimes struggle with. That assurance is not just external and objective, true as that is. And in fact, if you read that quote that's there in the study guide in its context, they start with that. They start with, well, God has promised that those who come to Christ will be saved. That's where we should start. No debate about it. That much I will retain from my former way of thinking about this subject. That you should start with the objective. But they go on and say there's also the testimony of the Spirit who witnesses with our spirits. And it's interesting, you read some of the expositions of this confession and they all agree that this, this testimony with is not with us pointing out, it's him ministering to us. This isn't the only assurance of salvation that the believer has, but it's a vital one. That in the here and now, the Spirit confirms to our inner man that we are indeed children of the living God. But not only does he testify in the here and now, secondly, as I close, he testifies to our future inheritance, verse 17. Verse 17, so he says, the Spirit himself, verse 16, testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children, and if children, verse 17, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. You probably picked this up when we looked back at the concept of adoption. In the world of the New Testament, adoption was, we kind of think of adoption as wonderful as adoption is, and I'm a big proponent of it, 
we often think of adoption primarily in terms of, oh, I really, like, I feel sorry for these children who don't have parents. And again, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying it as a negative, but that's kind of where our mind goes. Oh, I feel bad for these children who don't have parents. You know, I, I wish that we could provide them a family. That's all well and good, and that's vital. But in the world of the New Testament, they were a little more objective about this. Inheritance and adoption were always linked. The primary reason, that there's a reason why, remember that quote, it was the upper classes that did this? They had an inheritance. And what happened is if you didn't have a child to protect your inheritance, you adopted a free person to be your son. What belonged to the adoptive father would one day belong to the adopted son. And Paul picks up on that language and says, listen, if we are children of God, then we are heirs. We are going to inherit. And please don't sleep on how Paul says that in verse 17. He doesn't just say we are heirs. He says we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You see, our inheritance flows out of our union with Christ. It's precisely because we are joined inseparably to Christ that as Christ is the heir and he will one day inherit, so we too will inherit. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 4 puts it like this. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There is an inheritance that awaits every believer. And when you read, um, in fact, I'll give you a little homework assignment. Take some time this week and chase out that word inheritance in the New Testament. And look at what it's attached to. There's so much that awaits us when we, as it were, leave this world with all of its sufferings and all of its difficulties and we pass into glory. There's an inheritance that's waiting for us. Hebrews chapter 12, one of my favorite verses, verse 28 says, Since we are receiving a kingdom... Jesus told the disciples when they asked him, Lord, we gave up everything to follow you. I mean, think about that. They had businesses. They had families that they left behind. They had possessions to basically follow around this man who had no place to live, who spent most of his time on the road. And his best friends were the Pharisees who basically hated him all the time. Lord, we left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry about that. I know you did. He said, but there's nobody who leaves aside all of that and in the age to come won't have mothers and fathers and lands and possessions and eternal life. As some of you know, I don't have a lot of love for the prosperity gospel. And one of the many things I hate about the prosperity gospel is that it sells the Christian short. It basically says, well, God's inheritance is for you to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous in this life. Okay, then what happens when I leave this life? No, our inheritance is way bigger. And if I can kind of throw stones at a book that deserves to have stones thrown at it. This is not our best life. No, our best life isn't now. Our best life is yet to come. You see, it's easy for us to lose perspective when we're going through trials. It's easy for us to feel as though because things are going wrong, I must not be a son and God must be punishing me. No, no, I do believe that God disciplines his children. Sometimes severely, you know, if you don't get the message, God will turn up the heat. It's not beneath him. But sometimes our sufferings aren't the mark of displeasure they're the mark of sonship. Do you see that then, verse, end of verse 17? He says, we're heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Sometimes, as I conclude, we're going through to get through. Sometimes the journey is hard precisely because the destination is worth it. Worth it, excuse me. Sometimes the Almighty 
please, if anyone ever tells you, God won't give you more than you can bear, please don't listen to such a person. They don't know what they're talking about. No, God will sometimes give you more than you can endure for the exact reason of ensuring we get to where we need to be. Why? Because as we receive more than we're able to endure, as we go through things and we're like, as Paul said, we despaired of life itself. It's as we go through those moments, that's when our dependence on God becomes all the more real. Or our lack of dependence becomes all the more real and becomes apparent that oh, maybe my relationship with God isn't where it needs to be. <laughs> we will suffer as Christians. But here's the hope. The Spirit will see to it that we make it through, that we will be glorified on the other side precisely because we're God's children, precisely because we are owned by him and loved by him, we will make it through. And so it puts our sufferings in this life, whatever they may be, into perspective, doesn't it? It, it makes us to realize that, okay, whatever we're going through is real, we don't minimize the pain of what we're going through. We don't minimize the struggle of what we're going through. And at the same time, we recognize, if I can jump into verse 18, that the sufferings of this present time, you know, the sufferings that I need to go through so that I can be glorified on the other side, they're not worth comparing to the glory that's on the other side. And the reason we have an assurance of that is because in the here and now, we've been assured that we are children of God. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you, have, you don't have that assurance that you are known by him. You can. You can. Turn from your sin. We call that repentance. Turn to the Lord. We call that faith. Call out to him. Call out to him. Let's pray together. Father, we can only echo what your word has already said. Behold what manner of love that we should be called the sons of God. And I love how John puts that, Lord. He says, and so we are. Father, we thank you and give you praise for the reality of our sonship. We thank you for the fact that we are indeed children of the living God. Father, help us to live in light of our sonship. Whether we struggle with assurance or we struggle with the trials of this life that would seem to knock our vision from you and knock our focus from you. Help us that we would be reminded that we indeed are not orphans in this world, that we have a father, that he's welcomed us into his family and that he will keep us to the end. Father, I pray for as many as don't know you, as you've talked about this reality of adoption. Would your spirit be at work calling them into your family even now? Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this time. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, brother.